Amen. Well, you can open up in your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 7. And we are continuing to work through this this book, this gospel, the shortest of the gospels. And though the gospel itself is a short gospel, it's the shortest of the four, um, we're moving through it kind of slowly. And we're trying to get as much out of it as we can and learn from the Lord Jesus Christ uh, as we study uh, verse by verse, section by section, uh, what he does, what he's doing with his disciples, what he's doing with the crowd. So follow along. Um, it was several years ago that I was preaching in a, a chapel at a, a high school, a private Christian high school back in Simi Valley. And uh, knowing that I was talking to a bunch of students, uh, that I wanted to get their attention, it wasn't a given that I would have their attention. I needed to get their attention. I wanted to start off by doing something that maybe would shock them a little bit. I wanted to say something that would grab their minds, that would encourage them to then follow along and listen and all that. And so I was thinking through uh, what I was intending to teach and and an introduction for it. And I got up there and I prayed to open up the, the chapel message and I said this. I said, I hope none of you ends up like Steve Jobs. And it was about 2013, I think, when I said this. It would have been a year, year and a half uh, since Steve Jobs had died. Uh, some of you know who Steve Jobs is, a billionaire, uh, creator of the iPhone, all the Apple products, very popular figure. I said, I hope no one here ends up like Steve Jobs. There was a silence in the room. I, I could tell they were offended. Uh, these, these kids... Uh, were uh, every single one of these kids had an iPhone in their pocket. Um, they were, I was knocking over an idol that they worshipped, and I said, I hope you don't end up like them. And I even actually, someone talked back to me. I mean, that doesn't normally happen in a sermon. That someone said something back. I, I couldn't really make it out why or something like that. They were, they were a little bit offended that I would say something, that I didn't want them to end up like Steve Jobs. But they were listening. So I went on, and I told them, could you imagine, could you imagine pouring your life into something, becoming rich beyond your wildest imagination, becoming well-loved and popular, becoming something of an icon for a whole generation of people, gaining incredible amounts of power and influence, and then... As you lay dying, the crushing reality sets in that everything you have invested in will not be taken with you into the next life. That the empire you've built will crumble like sand before an ocean wave that tumbles over it and makes it nothing. Could you imagine that nothing that you've done, nothing you've created... All the work you've done, though everyone loves you, as soon as you take that last breath and enter into the next life, it's all irrelevant. That the riches you've accumulated and the popularity you've gained, well, you can't take it with you. And imagine even worse, that you come to realize as you wake up into eternity that the life you've lived was not in alignment with the purpose that God gave you and that you find yourself to have made 
been made an enemy of God because of your own life choices and your own sin and you hadn't done anything to be reconciled to God. Could you imagine that? Working so, so hard to accomplish something in your life only to at the very end realize it's all vanity. It was all empty. It was all meaningless. I think this happens far more often than we realize. That there are people who are working hard. They are doing all they can to create a good life. And their efforts, the works of their hands and the efforts of their, uh, their whole life's work being put forward in something, when God looks at it and evaluates it, he sees emptiness. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine even investing in a religion and doing something that you think pleases God? You, you do a lot of hard work thinking God is pleased by all these things that I'm doing, all the effort that I'm putting forth, all the discipline that I have. God is pleased. And then only to find out that God saw it all and was not pleased by it, but he saw it as empty, meaningless, of no value at all. Now, this sounds like a downer message this morning, doesn't it? But, but what we in experience in this text, we are going to meet a group of people who have committed their entire lives to working hard at their religion, to becoming very good people, to accomplishing something they feel really matters, only to meet their maker, Jesus Christ, and he calls it out, and he says it's empty. In fact, if you're there, your Bible's open, and we're there in chapter 7, you can look down at, at verse 7, where he's talking to these Pharisees. And I'm just going to point out a little phrase that Jesus says to these Pharisees, where he's quoting the prophet Isaiah. He says, in vain do they worship me. Let those words sink in. In vain. Do they worship me? Vain, what does that mean? Empty, meaningless, worthless. That the worship that the Pharisees had been offering to Jesus, Jesus looks at it, he evaluates it, he says it's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless, it's an empire of dirt. You have created all this stuff all your life as something you think that God will be pleased with, and God looks at it and he sees it as vain. I hope that as we study this, if there's anyone here among us, and there could be people among us that are, are doing all they can to live good lives, they're doing all they can to please God, but they're going about it in all the wrong ways. See, life is not like some of our little leagues. There's not a participation trophy if you try hard enough. And what we need to understand is God desires that we approach Him in the right way. And we have to go to the Scriptures to determine what is the right way. And so we're going to work through this amazing encounter where Jesus and these Pharisees, these Pharisees who have adopted a false religion, they have adopted a false way of approaching God, they collide with Jesus, and Jesus calls them out, and it's incredibly instructive for us so that we can know how God intends to be worshipped, how we are to come to God. And if anyone here is caught up in a false religion, 
a false kind of religiosity, a false kind of external Christianity that consists of church attendance and Bible studies and singing songs and raising hands and closing your eyes and saying prayers that doesn't have a real and vibrant relationship with the Savior. I hope this text will expose that and it will help us come to understand the reality of authentic, genuine faith in Christ. I wouldn't want any of you to be like that person who has invested their life into something, but they will come to find out on the day of judgment that it was all in vain. Wouldn't that be a tragedy? The tragedy of tragedies. And if there's anyone like that, I, I hope this ministers to you and helps you understand true worship of the living God. Uh, I want to point out before we actually dive into the text that we actually all tend to drift toward religion and not a relationship with God. Uh, we tend to drift toward externals, things we can see, feel, touch as evidences that we are right with God. And so this is relevant for all of us because we are all always in danger of making our relationship more of a rigid formalism rather than an internal issue of the heart. Let's look at the text. We're kind of going to work through it as we go by, uh, go through verse by verse. We're going to look at it, and I'll give you three headings for the sermon this morning. First, we're going to see the religious and how they're described. Second, we're going to see uh, how Jesus denounces the religious And then we're going to describe the redeemed. So what are the redeemed like? What do they look like? And as we look at these things, it might be that we find ourselves in the text. Uh, Let's describe the religious. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. And that is unwashed. Let's pause there for a second. Let's describe what's going on. Pharisees are coming to Jesus. It says there are some scribes with them. Let's, dis- let's determine who these people are so you guys know what's going on here. Okay? Pharisees. Pharisees, you've heard about them before. If you've ever been in church, you know what a Pharisee is. A Pharisee uh, it comes up again and again in the Gospels. These are the people who were kind of the religious elite of the time. The Pharisees... Um, We understand them to basically be synonymous with hypocrites, but that's not how they would have been understood in the day that Jesus was interacting with them. Pharisees were actually honored. Pharisees were looked up to. These were the educated ones. These were the ones who were kind of the doorkeepers of the law. They were the ones that taught Israel, and people looked to them as the example, the pinnacle of what it would mean to be religious and right with God and to be faithful. The actual, the, the word Pharisee, is in the, it comes from the, the Hebrew root word that has an association with separate, to be separated. And that could be, mean that they saw themselves to be separate from the ordinary Jew of their day. It could also mean that they made a big deal of being separated from anything unclean. Okay? Anything unclean. They wanted to be holy, devoted to the Lord, consecrated to the Lord. And the Pharisee, the kind of the idea of the Pharisee started actually hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the scene. By the time that Jesus appears on the scene, this, this pursuit of holiness really had begun to consist of laws upon laws upon laws upon laws. The scribes, who are kind of an overlapping group, Uh, as part of the Pharisees, were uh, those people who kind of saw themselves as the right interpreters of the Torah, first five books of the Bible. 
The scribes were responsible for understanding, interpreting the Torah, and then passing it on from generation to generation. And what they did, of course, was they added uh, more rules, just as these Pharisees, and they made sure these additional rules would be passed on through the oral tradition, and they would write additional works. You guys maybe have heard of the Talmud or the Mishnah. These are additional traditions that were added on to the actual Old Testament. So here's what you got. You got Old Testament Jews that are trying to be faithful to the Scriptures. And so they, they, they add rules to the Scriptures to make sure they're following the rules. And then they would add more rules to make sure they can keep those rules. Here's, uh, here's an example. Imagine, uh, you know, there's a rule you, you shouldn't eat from the tree. Let's go back to the garden. What would a Pharisee do? Well, a Pharisee would say, all right, if I'm not supposed to eat from the tree, I'm also, I want to be extra careful. I'm going to build a gate around the tree. Uh, an extra rule. We're not going to pass the gate. But, you know, I might be tempted to go through the gate, so I'm going to build a moat around that gate as well. And, uh, man, I don't really want to even be tempted to look at that moat, so I'm going to make sure I never buy any swim trunks. You know, there's things like that, that, that they, would, they would do rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. And then, and here's where it gets really bad, is they would hold up this standard that they've created to everyone else as, as this is the way you become righteous. You avoid the swimsuit section. <laughs> you, you avoid anything that might tempt you to cross the moat, that might tempt you to get into the gate, that might get you to look at the tree. Do you see what I mean? Rule upon rule, line upon line, you're adding tradition upon tradition. The Pharisees and the scribes were all about making sure that they were extra holy. And they did that by adding rules. What ends up happening is, of course, that adding extra rules to your life doesn't actually change your heart, and it actually inflates your pride because you become more focused on man-made rules than on God's rules. You start focusing more on what you can do rather than what God has done, and that's exactly what had happened with these scribes and these Pharisees. And it says that they were gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, a little geography. Jerusalem's about 90 miles south of where Jesus has been ministering. 90 miles, okay? Jesus has been up kind of the north part of the Sea of Galilee. He has become so popular that the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem, 90 miles south, Jerusalem's kind of the head place for all the Jewish life and, and all the Pharisees and all the scribes, the big ones at least, would be coming from Jerusalem and they hear Jesus up north, he's doing something uh, crazy here. He's, he's gotten all these crowds and remember if we go back, he just fed the 5,000 which is actually maybe 15, 20,000 if you include women and children. He's doing these amazing works, his popularity spreading and now the scribes and the Pharisees go, uh-oh. This guy's going to upset our system if he keeps getting popular because he doesn't teach what we teach. He doesn't do what we do. And so they think, all right, we've got to come deal with this guy. They had actually come in chapter 3, verse 22, if you remember, months ago, that the Pharisees had come up from Jerusalem, and they, at that point, accused him of, remember, being demon-possessed. Now they come, and they got a different accusation that they're going to bring to him. Um, look at what this says, verse 2. They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. (gasps) They weren't washing their hands. Now, I understand in our day and age right now, someone traveling 90 miles to make sure you're washing your hands. Um, But this actually wasn't a hygiene thing. This this wasn't a hygiene issue. Uh, This was a religious issue. 
Because what the Jews and the Pharisees had taught, you see this, look at chapter, verse 3. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. This had become a tradition that had been passed down. It was part of the extra law upon law upon law upon law that they had created for themselves that they, it helped them to be extra holy, extra separated from any kind of sin, extra separated from any kind of unclean object. They didn't want to be defiled by anything on the outside that could come in and defile them. And so they did this ceremonial washing. Every time that they ate, they would wash their hands properly according to this system. It says holding to the tradition of the elders. So a tradition of these elders had been passed down from generation to generation for hundreds of years. And now this is what is expected. It even says there in the text, all the Jews did this. So the disciples and Jesus, by not doing it, were being nonconformist. They were saying, we're not going to do this. We're not, I know everyone else does this. We're not going to do this. We're not going to wash our hands. We're not going to follow the tradition of the elders. Verse 4, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. That word wash is the same Greek word for baptize. It has the idea of immersion. Um, they're saying if you go out into the marketplace and you're, you're picking up some different foods that you're going to bring home and you're going to use to cook for your next meal, you might actually accidentally uh, brush against someone who's unclean. Or you might grab some food that was been, what has been handled by someone who has not washed properly. And so when you get home, you've got to do this full immersive bath. You've got to take a shower. You've got to get in the bathtub, something. You've got to immerse. You've got to wash. And so it was another layer. And this just goes to show, verse 4, this is kind of what Mark is making as his point. There are many other traditions that they observed, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I mean, they washed their couch, guys. They washed their couch. My couch needs a washing. I don't even know where to begin to wash my couch. But that's what they did. They were trying to become so clean, so separated that they did all these things to make sure they did not get defiled at all. It was meticulous, hard work, washing everything they touched, bathing all the time, ceremonially uh, cleansing themselves. Jesus is going to say it's all empty. And we need to, to draw this point. You might be tempted to think that adding more rules to your life will help you become holy. That is a lie. Don't buy it. Many of us try to become more righteous, more like Christ, and we think, okay, I'm going to make more rules for myself. I'm going to add this rule, this standard, this ritual, this ceremony. I'm going to add more rules, and then I'm really going to be holy. I'm going to wake up earlier. I'm going, to, I'm going to go to bed right on time. Now, these are all good things to do. But often what happens, we try to change our hearts by merely addressing our habits outside. Address your habits, but don't address your habits without addressing your hearts. And what these people had done, they'd added rules, rituals to your life. Rules and rituals to your life will not change your heart. It will make you actually the opposite of what you hope to become. It will lift up your heart and pride because you will begin to focus more on what God has not said. You will begin to focus more on the man-made rules you have made. And if you succeed in following your own man-made rules, you'll have not 
Christ's righteousness, not God's righteousness, not the righteousness that he demands. You will have self-righteousness. And what is self-righteousness? It's rooted in pride and it's offensive to God. But that is what is happening here. These man-made rules they've created, and then they look down on everyone else who's not keeping their rules. By the way, this is how you know you got a little bit of the, the Pharisee in you. The, the Pharisee in us, we create the rule, and then we hold everyone to our standard. By all means, create habits and systems and rituals in your life to help you per- pursue Christ. But don't look at them as the source of change, and then don't become Pharisaical where you lo- look at everyone else and say, why aren't you following my rules? Well, they had become, these Pharisees, so caught up with their self-invented holiness that they wanted to impose it on Jesus and his disciples. They had become incredibly religious, these people, but they were not redeemed. Get that. It's possible to be religious without being redeemed. It's possible to be highly religious and be lost. Utterly lost. This is what this happened in here. And so verse 5, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Here they are imposing their standards on Jesus and his disciples. Here they are expecting him to conform to their traditions, expecting God incarnate to follow the tradition of the elders. It's folly. And what is actually happening here when you look at what's going on is that this is a thinly veiled accusation, isn't it? They are accusing him. Jesus, you're a sloppy rabbi. You're not even teaching your disciples the proper ceremonial washings. How dare you lead them astray like that? They're coming not to help him with their uh, practice. They're coming with an accusation that they are doing it all wrong. They're trying to discredit him. By the way, when you read uh, John and the other Gospels, it's pretty clear that at this point in the narrative, the Pharisees want Jesus gone. They want him destroyed. John mentions they're trying to kill him. Mark has already mentioned they're trying to destroy him. What are they going to do? How how do you, the the Pharisees are feeling that their authority is going to be undermined if the masses start following Jesus instead of them. So they got to do something about Jesus. What are they going to do? It's, yes, they're going to work to kill him, but before they do that, what do they want to do? They want to discredit him. They want him to be presented as a bad rabbi, a bad leader who doesn't know what he's doing, and that's why they're bringing this up, that they don't wash their hands. That's what religion does. They create man-made traditions, and they hold everyone to it. It is not what God has required, but here they are imposing their human tradition on the disciples, on Jesus And listen, Jesus sees right through it. Let's look at how Jesus denounces the religious here. And we're going to see several ways the Pharisees are not what they think they are. They are completely, completely self-deceived. Just listen to this. The capacity for us to deceive ourselves is so high, we, we almost can't even imagine that our capacity for self-deception is almost boundless, that we hate to look in the mirror. We hate to evaluate our hearts. We, we, when you get down to the nitty-gritty and you really start to ask, what's deep down in here, it is sometimes so disturbing that we just don't want to look. 
And so we deceive ourselves. But here Jesus is going to just pierce their hearts and pull out their heart and cause them, hey, look, look at who you are. This is perfect love doing this. It takes some hard words from Jesus to help them see who they are. What does he say? Verse 6, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Pause right there. (laughs) He he quotes the Old Testament passage where Isaiah is speaking to hard-hearted Israel. And Israel, he's going to quote, or he's going to quote Isaiah, uh, this famous passage from Isaiah. But before he does, I want just to point out what he called these guys. You see that? Hypocrites. Isaiah was right to say this about you. That you are a hypocrite. Jesus, perfect love and wisdom, speaking to the Pharisees, says, here's what you need to hear. You are a hypocrite. Here's the first thing that that Jesus does as he's denouncing. We're going to see several. You could jot these down if you're taking notes. First, theirs is a hypocritical religion. A religion that makes rules upon rules, that creates traditions above gods. They're first hypocritical. That's what, that's what it means to be a Pharisee, is to engage in hypocrisy. The, the word hypocrite literally means uh, someone who is a play actor. In fact, the way the word was initially used wasn't negative at all. It referred to someone who literally was an actor in a play. And the hypocrite in the play would be wearing a mask, and he would play or she would play one part with the mask, and then the play would go on in part two. He or she would play a separate part with a different mask. They would be literally play-acting different parts. And the word eventually came to mean to refer to the kind of person who is putting on masks wherever they are. Okay, so you're at church, you got your church mask. You're at home, you got your home mask. You're with your family, you got your family mask. Okay, and in every different scenario you're in, you put on a different mask so as to blend in or so as to impress those around you. These people were hypocrites. It was all an act. Think back of all the things they were doing, all the, all the, uh, the washings, the, the washings of their hands, the, the bathing of their bodies, the washings of the cups and the couches. You know what it was? Jesus saw right through it. He, 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 he sees right through and he goes, this is all an act. It's all an act. There's nothing in the heart here. It's, it's all a sham. It's all a presentation. You're play acting. Like you're play acting to all these people around you so they can see you as you want to be seen. You want to be seen as this high and holy individual. And so you do all these things. It's a hypocrite. That's what you are, Jesus says. We have to ask the question as we think about how these things apply to our own lives. If Would there be any hypocrites here this morning? Would there be any of us here this morning that are play acting the Christian? You're not... Christian in private, you're not Christian in the things you watch or the things you listen to, the words you say to others, the way you treat others, the way you treat those in your family, but you're here at church and you sing songs. Friends, it is possible for us to turn into hypocrites. None of us is immune to the temptation to present to certain people what we want them to see while privately living an entirely different life. 
It's possible to come to church and the scriptures are read, but you don't hear them as the words of God. You hear them as the reading from an old book. The songs are sung. The truths don't really resonate with you. The prayers are being offered up to God, but that's really what the guy up front is doing. That's not really your prayer. It's like you're playing a part. This is what's going on. Jesus does not pull any punches to say, you're hypocrites. You're hypocrites. All the stuff you're doing, it's just hypocrisy. Friends, Jesus sees right through us, doesn't he? He sees right through us. We cannot trick him. He sees right into our hearts, and he knows where they are. Secondly, here's the second fact about these Pharisees that Jesus brings up to help them see who they truly are. Look at what he goes on to say. He says, as it is written, these people, or this people, honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is to say, it's all external. There's your second point. It's all external. It's all on the outside. I want you to notice that there's two parts of the human being that are represented there in verse 6. Uh, these people, they honor me with their what? Lips. Lips. But their heart is far. There's a division in the individual. There's a division in the person. That the external part of the lips, the part of the person that speaks, the part of the person that sings, the part of the person that can teach, all of that is being honoring to God. But when Jesus sees right through him, he says, but your hearts, your inner man is distant, far from me. You are so concerned, and this is what hypocrites do, they're focused on the externals. It's like saying, yes, you're wearing the wedding ring on your finger, but I know that you don't love me. See, the Pharisees had begun such a focus on the externals They focused on washing their hands and washing their cups and washing their couches. They thought that they became unclean by what touched them or what they touched. They did not realize that the issue was more fundamental. It was an issue of their hearts. Friends, you've probably seen these kinds of things in the news, haven't you? Recently, prominent pastors, prominent church leaders, prominent preachers have been found out to have been living a double life seen this stuff? How does that happen? It's a focus that is misdirected. It's a focus that's on the externals. How do I present myself? How do I appear? What are the things I do? Rather than a focus on the heart, dealing with the issues of your own heart. It is possible for us to check the boxes of the external things we do while ignoring our hearts. And we could slide with subtlety into hypocrisy because we're focused on whether our lips are giving honor to God while our hearts are adrift. We don't look at our own issues. We're desperately afraid of 
our own hearts. We're desperately afraid to deal with the issues that are there. We're desperately afraid of confessing our sins to other people. Why? Because we're more concerned about the appearance of looking good. We would rather look godly than be godly, and thus we create double lives. That's what they had done. Their heart was so far. It's often exposed that this happens in churches. And let me just throw the question out to all of us to consider. Are you living a double life? Would anyone know you enough to tell you if you're living a double life? If no one knows you, it's very easy to live a double life. This is why, friends, we have a church that commits to know each other and to love each other, and to be, as we've said, intentionally intrusive with one another. Because we should be all too aware of the propensity of the human heart to start bifurcating the lips and the heart, to start living as if what is public is what is true. But it's not always the case. We should be aware that our hearts can drift. Invite people in as a way to battle against hypocrisy. So they were so focused on the externals, they wouldn't take their heart to task. They wouldn't face their hearts. And again, Jesus was not fooled in the slightest. Third is what Jesus says about their their lives. Third, it's empty. And this is where we began. Verse 7, in vain do they worship me. In emptiness, they worship me. In futility, it's meaningless. There's no life in it. You're offering up to Jesus a dead corpse. It's a worthless sham. It's barren. It's offensive. It's it's not like this worship needs a few tweaks. Jesus says it's vain. It's empty. There is nothing in this that's good. But everyone is impressed by it. You see that? The Pharisees were beloved by the people that saw them live out their lives in the first century. They were the honored ones. They got the pats on the back, and everyone approved of the Pharisees and not Jesus. He saw right through it. He says, this is all empty. Everyone else might be applauding you. Everyone else might be cheering you on. And God does not approve. This is why this is such a dangerous form, I think, the, the, the sin of legalism, externalism, formalism is so dangerous because people will applaud you as you plunge into it. <laughs> people will think that you're holy as you become more legalistic. And they will clap with you and for you, celebrating how committed you are. But it is possible to be committed in only external ways. And in the end, God says it is is vain. See, these people, what we're seeing about these Pharisees, is they put extraordinary effort into their holiness, don't they? Crazy amounts of effort. Constantly washing, constantly looking back at their traditions to see if they're doing it right. Meticulous attention being paid to details. Effort is there. The effort is there. And they're building an empire of dirt, a sandcastle on the beach about to be destroyed by a tsunami. It is not in any way acceptable to God. It's vain. This is actually the way that he puts it here. God says, in vain do they worship me. This is actually probably the more tame uh, indictment on their worship. There There are other places in Scripture where Jesus is a lot more direct and seemingly harsh, but he needs to be very blunt about the issue that is being faced. In the Old Testament, God 
outrightly faces the hypocrisy of his people by calling it out. Listen to Amos 5, starting in verse 21. You don't need to turn there. Just listen to what God says about the false worship of Israel. He says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. These are the words of God speaking to the people of Israel as they tried to worship God in their feasts. He says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's all empty. God looks down at the false worship of Israel and he says, I hate it. And I wonder if there's people who come and they sing and they're, 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 they're loud and they're attentive to what's going on every Sunday and every gathering. And they're very religious and they're very, quote-unquote, spiritual. And God would look down and say, it's empty. There's nothing there. There's a hypocrisy, there's lips moving, but it's empty. The heart is distant. Here's a fourth reality that Jesus is pointing out about their lives here. He says, in vain do they worship me, verse 7. Look at this, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, what, what, what's all happening, and this is kind of where we see this is the, the, the issue, is that they've actually made human tradition more authoritative than God's word. The, the doctrines of, they, they teach as doctrines, that is authoritative teachings, they teach as doctrines the commandments of men. So, so men have come up with these commandments, and they've made them into traditions, and now these scribes and Pharisees teach all these other Jews how to live a life that pleases God, but they teach it as if it is God's very word. They make themselves to be God. They make their own traditions to be God's word. And it is offensive to God. They've done this, and they have not realized, but this is what happens. We all need to understand this, that when human tradition is elevated and takes the priority over God's Word, it inevitably leads to a man-centeredness, a kind of legalism, a kind of formalism, a kind of external focus that neglects the heart and drowns us Uh, in legalism. It takes us away from the gospel of grace. No longer do we need grace when we look to our rule keeping to make us right before God. So we prioritize man's word or, or, or man's word over God's word. This is what we're seeing here. This is what the Pharisees had done. And this is what's happening everywhere, church. We have to be aware that this happens in our day to day, doesn't it? That there are always opinions about how you ought to live. You encounter various opinions about how you ought to live. You need to do this try this. Avoid that. This is the right way. Oh, don't do that. That's the wrong way. And here's what I need to make clear, church. Take every opinion that is presented to you as the right way. And what do you do with it? You grab your Bible and you say, okay, where does that line up with the Word of God? Because this is the authority. This is the filter. If it doesn't line up with the Word of God, discard it discard it. You don't need to follow man-made rules and traditions. And this is why, by the way, as a church, everything we do, we try our best to do only that which God explicitly commands. We're trying to say, what has God required of us? Let's do that. 
And let's not mandate anything that God has not mandated. Because we don't want to slide into prioritizing the word of man over the word of God. So we grab our Bibles and we search our scriptures. This is what we learned in the Reformation, right? Sola Scriptura. You know what that means? Scripture alone is our high authority. Scripture alone. No tradition, no opinion, no man has authority over the Word of God. Everything is tested by Scripture. And that's apparently what was going wrong with the Pharisees is their traditions had become the very words of God to them. They had elevated their traditions, and so they left out the Word of God. And here's the last part. He reiterates that in verse 8. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Here's our last issue that we see being brought up here. Number five is selfishness. Look what Jesus says. This one would be a little bit confusing to us if we're unsure of what Jesus is saying. I'll try to explain it so you understand what's going on. It says, verse 9, He said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. That's what they've been doing. God's command says this, okay, sure, but, but look at our tradition. It says this, we need to establish that. And look at what he says. He says, for Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Jesus, unlike the Pharisees, is quoting scripture. You see that? He is quoting Moses. This would be from Exodus 20, verse 12. This would be from Deuteronomy 5, 16. He's saying, this is what God has said. But then he goes on to say, but you say, verse 11, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. What's going on? What is Corbin? Let me explain this to you real quick. Uh, Corbin was a loophole. Corbin was a way of getting out of the need to care for your parents. So the law of God in the Old Testament said you needed to honor your parents, and part of the way you honor your parents is that when they're getting elderly, you make sure you have enough money to support them and to uh, ensure that they're being fed, they're being taken care of. That was the way you honored your parents. If you didn't do that, it was a high offense in Israel. But the loophole was this. They created this tradition that if you went to your savings account and you looked at your saving account and you went, I pronounce my savings account to be Corbin. (laughs) What that meant was this is devoted to God. This is a gift of God. All my savings are devoted to be given to God. Here's what it meant. It meant you could actually keep it for yourself and that you weren't allowed to, by rabbinic tradition, to give it to anybody, even your needy parents. It was this tradition enabled them to have a loophole where they can look holy. It's Corbin. This is all for God. But enabled them to keep the money for themselves. It enabled them to deny basic care for their parents. How insidious and disgusting and wicked is this sin? Oh, I am all about worshiping God. And I want all my money to be Corbin, given to God. It's all for Him. And people would go, oh, wow, you must be very spiritual. All your money 
Corbin given to God, and yet their poor parents would be hungry, without a place to sleep their heads. They'd be dying, and their sons and daughters, uh, according to this Pharisaic tradition, would say, oh, I'm sorry, Mom. I'm sorry, Dad. It's all the Lord's. You know, if I could, I'd give you some, but I can't. And there they would suffer. And Jesus calls it out. Their tradition enabled them to be selfish. And by the way, you need to know this, wherever there's legalism, wherever there's false religion, wherever there's externalism, they end up, you end up, when you peel back some layers, it's all a racket. It's all for the money. It's all to create some sort of impressive appearance that gets people in awe of you. Why? So you can get something out of it. So you can get some money for yourself. This is why you have false teachers repeatedly all about the money, all about the things they can do, and they're very impressive on the outside. And this is what the Pharisees had done. All of it wasn't for God. None of it was for God. It was all empty. It was vain. It was futile. It was meaningless worship. Why did they do it? This gets to the heart of it. They did it because they wanted the money for themselves. They wanted the accolades for themselves. They wanted to be impressive to others. All their religion was selfish. And therefore, it was a wicked thing, repugnant to God. It had nothing to do with genuine heartfelt worship. So Jesus is absolutely unimpressed by this. It is hypocritical, play-acting, heartless, external-only. And so he rebukes it in no uncertain terms. Now, I want to stop for a second and ask, well, if this is what he's rebuking, what is it that he would expect in genuine worship? If this is all false religion, what does redemption look like? What what does it look like to actually be redeemed? What does it look like for the heart to actually have a relationship with God? And if we were to go back and kind of flip it all upside down and say, well, what are the opposites of the things that he's rebuking? We can actually get a pretty good picture of the right way to approach God. Let's start with the first rebuke that he had. He called them hypocrites. Well, what's the opposite of hypocrisy? And here's really our third point is we're going to look at what does redemption look like as it takes heart, uh, it takes root in the hearts of our people. What does redemption look like? Well, it's not hypocrisy. That's what the hypocrites, that's what the Pharisees do. What What is it then? It's honesty. Honesty. One of the marks of someone who is truly right with God is they've come to see their sin so deeply that they know that they cannot fix it. And so they stop trying to hide it. They stop trying to act as if they can just wash it away or ignore it. They own it. They say, this is who I am, a sinner in desperate need of mercy. And so they are willing to confess their sin to God. They are willing to confess their sins to one another because they know they need help and they can't do it alone. You see, the presence of sin does not make you a hypocrite. We, we need to think of that. Sometimes we're very sensitive and we go, oh, man, I'm a hypocrite if I sin. No, no, no. The presence of sin does not make you a hypocrite. You become a hypocrite when you act as if you don't have any sin. 
you, you become a hypocrite when you act as if the sin doesn't really matter that much or you can just deal with it on, on your own and you don't really need to bring it before God and, and you're actually much better than uh, you, you, you really are. You try to present something that you're not. That's dishonest. The first step toward true, genuine relationship with God is to actually come to grips with who you are. Stop pretending, take off the mask, confess to God who you are. Sins and all. Come to Him for mercy and you find it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 is a verse that I think we unwittingly disobey a lot. It says this. It says, Therefore, Having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know when we're most tempted to disobey, speak the truth with your neighbor? It's when you show up to church on Sunday morning and someone asks you, how you doing? That is the time we are so tempted to lie. Because often it's very easy to just say, I'm fine. How's your life? Oh, we're good. You know, busy. See, that's how hypocrites are made, is that we don't let people in to what's actually going on, which is why, by the way, it's helpful when we're trying to get to know people to also sometimes follow up and say, well, really, how you're doing? How are you doing? Really? I know that one of the ways we'll see our church growing in maturity One of the evidences that we're growing in maturity is that when we're willing to honestly confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another, to forgive one another, that you can bring up the areas of life that you're struggling, knowing that your brother or your sister will put his arm or her arm around you and pray for you and help you get through life. See, we're honest. Hypocrites aren't honest. They hide their issues. They don't let anyone in. They run away. They seclude themselves from everyone else so that they don't let anyone into the problems that are going on deep down. So the redeemed are honest. Secondly, let's look at what Jesus said. Jesus said that the focus was on the lips and not the heart. But what what do the redeemed do? We do focus on the heart. The heart. In other words, we're not just focused on the externals. We're not just focused on what you can see. We're focused on our hearts. Think about what your heart is. The heart is really the control center for everything you do. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart is the overflow of all the issues of life. The heart thinks, the heart feels, the heart evaluates, the heart judges, the heart chooses, the heart loves, the heart desires, the heart longs, the heart aches, the heart lusts, the heart craves, the heart worships. You are a result of who your heart is and what's going on in your heart. The words you say, the actions you do are all a result of what is in your heart. If you want to change the external You need to address the heart. And here's the thing. You can't actually change your own heart. God must change the heart. So if you want to be changed, what do you do? You repent. You humble yourself. You say, God, I can't change myself. Help me. Change the heart. You see, we don't want to be merely concerned with doing our duty. Just do the thing and get it done. That's not what Scripture teaches. Think about this. Yes, we're called to serve, but the Bible says we are to serve the Lord with gladness. That's a heart issue. Yes, we're called to sing. We're called to sing with thanksgiving. That's a heart issue. Yes, we're called to give, 
but we're called to give cheerfully. That's a heart issue. Yes, we're called to obey, but we're called to obey, obey with glad obedience. That's heart issue. It's not stoicism that we're promoting as a church. The hearts need to be in it. All of what we're doing, we're addressing the heart. I remember when I was uh, encountering these things for the first time, it was kind of monumental. It was like a bomb went off in my brain for my own spiritual walk with the Lord. And I suddenly realized that if I wanted to truly change, if I wanted to truly change, I had to address my desires. I had to address my attitudes. I had to address my affections. And (laughs) that meant a lot of repenting. And so what do the redeemed do? They're honest. They address their own issues of the heart. Here's what a third, here's what the redeemed do. They prioritize God's word. Unlike the Pharisees who elevated traditions, we, as God's people, we want to prioritize the word of God, not tradition. Everything comes under the scrutiny of the scriptures. We believe that the word of God is sufficient for life and godliness. And so we read it, we study it, we compare everything we hear against it. I remember hearing a story about a woman years ago who was in a cult, and she got saved out of the cult, and when she was converted, she got this insatiable appetite for truth to the point where she's just devouring Scripture, and she's eating up tomes of theology just to learn, to learn. And she was reported to have said again and again, I just want the truth. I just want the truth. Just, just what is the truth? Show me the truth. And I think that ought to be the cry, the battle cry of the church, isn't it? What is true? What has God said? Let's prioritize that, unlike some who prioritize tradition. And lastly, the redeemed. Unlike the Pharisees who used their religion to be selfish, when we follow Christ, we will not be selfish, we will be sacrificial. Lay our lives down for the sake of others. We're not in this for ourselves. We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. We're not trying to impress others. We're not trying to build an empire for ourselves. We are laying our lives down at the foot of the cross. And we're saying, Lord, use my life. I want to give all I can, give of my time, give of my treasure, give of my talent for the sake of others. Give till it hurts. I want to lay down my life for Christ. No religious person will do that. A religious person will go to church. A religious person can sing. A religious person can go through all the motions, but only those who are redeemed are the people who say it's all for Christ. That's what my heart is. This is what I want. See, here's what it comes down to. The Pharisees were religious, but they were not redeemed. They believed that there were essentially two people in the world, two kinds of people, good and bad. And they saw themselves as the good guys. But the gospel doesn't teach that there are only two kinds of people in the world, good and bad. It does affirm there are two types of people in the world, but the two types of people in the world are these. There are those who are bad, and there are those who are bad and repent. There are evil people, and there are repentant evil people. There are those who are wicked and those who are wicked who repent. In other words, here's what it comes down to, is we understand who we are before a holy God. We understand that we can do nothing. We understand that we have offended God. And we do not try to build our lives upon 
the religion of Christianity, the externals of Christianity, or the religion of any kind of system. We don't do that because that will puff us up with pride. We can't make ourselves good. We can't do enough to earn it. We say we are in need of mercy. And if I don't have mercy, I have no hope because I'm a wretched sinner before a holy God. And we bow before Him. We say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And we cry out to Him for grace and listen, God, who is abundant in mercy, who is great in compassion, who loves to show His love to those who don't deserve it, He will abundantly pardon And so we don't add religion to our lives. We don't add the rituals and routines thinking that will make us holy. It will only puff us up. Instead, we get on our knees in humility. We say, Lord, save. It must be you. And we believe. We believe that Jesus, he came. He lived the life that I couldn't live. He died the death that I deserved. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and Satan and death and hell. He's alive right now. He extends his perfect gift of salvation to you. Should you repent and cry to mercy, it's yours. You'll get the mercy. He'll give you his righteousness as if you lived it. He'll take your sin and pay for it on that cross. And you will never be puffed up in pride as long as you're living day by day in light of that cross. The cross will humble you. And yet you'll receive a kind of confidence in the Lord that he is your father, that he loves you. And you can rest in the assurance that he has saved you. But the more you rest on the works you've done, you will have no assurance because they will never be enough. So let's flee from false religion. Let's flee it from all the extra add-ons that actually only take away from the gospel truth. And let's ask ourselves, what has God said? Let's embrace the gospel by faith. Trust in Him and Him alone. And walk in wholehearted, non-hypocritical devotion to Him. Let's pray. So Lord, I pray that none of us here would devote ourselves to a purpose, to a goal that ends up being vain and empty and worthless in the end. Whether it's a religious efforts to make ourselves presentable to You, or whether it's worldly pursuits that we think give our lives meaning, I pray that we would repent. I pray that we would repent. And that in repentance, we would find mercy. And that we would learn not to look to the works of our hands for assurance, but to the finished work of Christ. And in Him, have the wholehearted assurance that we are loved by You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.